This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast. When an NLL GM slides into your DMs, you kind of got to interview him, right? Rich Lisk and I have had many chats over the years, and as a lacrosse and wrestling fan, this may be my favorite. We talk Q, NLL, WWF, and more right here on OTCB. What is good, lacrosse fans, and welcome back to the Off the Crossbar podcast here on SoundCloud, NLL Radio, the Lacrosse Flash. My name is Teddy Jenner. You can find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar. You can email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com, or like our guest did this week, slide into my DMs. That's right. Uh, Rich Lisk reached out to me wanting to chat, and... I can never say no to Rich Lisk. And not because we can always talk what's going on in the National Lacrosse League, but I can get the most amazing wrestling stories out of him. And for those of you that know me, know that I'm a huge wrestling guy. Always have been. Always will be. And so anytime I get a chance to talk to Rich... I try and get a little juicy nugget out of him or two, and this week he spares no expense. He tells some incredible stories uh, about his time uh, working with the World Wrestling Federation, now the WWE. But of course we have to talk about the other three letters in his life, and that is the NLL. So you all watched the draft a few weeks ago, and while some were maybe surprised at what happened with the first overall pick in the New York Riptide selecting Tyson Gibson, we all kind of maybe lose sight at the fact that maybe Gibson was at the top of their list the entire time. And we kind of got caught up in the case of looking at the shiny car over in the corner and forgot about the truck over on the side of the lot. So when Andrew Q becomes available for the the New England Black Wolves at number three, because in my mind, Rochester was always taking Ryland reset too, no matter who went first overall. So while some people may have been shocked at Gibson going one, I think it's a safe bet to say that New England was always going to be happy with who they got at three because it was either going to be Andrew Q or Tyson Gibson. So they kind of had their eyes set and their thinking going into the new season already kind of in place with that number three pick. So while it may have been surprising for many of us, I think at the end of the day, New England maybe thought they were always going to get him. Sure, it would have been super awesome if Daryl Gibson was going to be able to get up on stage and announce that the New England Black Wolves select his son, Tyson Gibson, with the number three pick. That would have been such an amazing storybook moment. You don't get to write those too often. Of course, as I say that, Derek Keenan did it a few years ago, obviously drafting his son, Ryan Keenan. But still, that doesn't get to happen often in sports. So it was kind of a happy moment lost. But at the end of the day, the New England Black Wolves got themselves the best left-handed forward in the draft. And they couldn't be more happy about it. General Manager Rich Lisk and his staff have been working tirelessly during the offseason to take this club from a almost to a true contender. And they have the pieces, they just need to fill some holes. And in the draft, they've done that. And through free agency, they've done that. They've picked up some pieces, they've got a team that they feel has the ability to not only make the playoffs, but be a number one seed in the new revamped Eastern Division. So sit back and relax as Rich and I go over the gamut of topics. We talked the National Cross League, Andrew Q, how successful draft night was, 
for the New England Black Wolves. Obviously, the WWE, we talk, he tells stories of doing shots with Andre the Giant, being Big Daddy Diesel, cool handler on the road, and how those memories and stories and life experiences have led him to the role that he is now with the New England Black Wolves in making them not only a success on, but also off the floor. Joined now by the general manager of the New England Black Wolves, friend of the show, Rich List. Sir, how are you? Teddy, how you doing, buddy? Good to talk to you. Uh, I am fantastic. Another beautiful day on the island. Uh, where are you these days? I am in uh, where I live in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. So today it's cold and rainy here in Lawrenceville. So it's about 45 minutes from uh, New York and about yeah, about an hour from New York and 45 minutes from Philadelphia. We're outside well, of Princeton. Are you going to the Edmonton Oilers New Jersey Devils game tonight? <laughs> I am not going to that because I'm, I'm actually leaving for uh, I'm leaving for Key West on a uh, on a day here, and I'm running in the Key West half marathon. Wow! Get, yeah, you know it's one of these things where last year my wife turned 50 and she had a bucket list, 50 things to do in her 50th year, and one of the things is she said I want to run, and I've been kind of a runner on and off, and we said let's 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 do a race so i'm like all right let's do a 5k and then friends of ours came and said oh, let's do a disney half marathon so we flew down to disney we trained for a year and then flew down to disney for the half marathon ran the half marathon did it in you know, our time limit we wanted and we ran we finished running the whole thing and she looked up at me and goes that's it i'm done i'll never do this again <laughs> and i got bit by the bug so i'm going down and actually uh traveling with my coach my coach and his wife are coming down and his wife and i are going to run and my wife and coach glenn are going to sit at the starting line which is called loggerhead's bar and wait for us so, <laughs> glenn's not a runner be fun glenn is not a runner he's got too many injuries yeah yeah um you ever want to do a full marathon my wife asks me that all the time and you know what <laughs> i think i'm good with the half um mm-hmm. Because I can mentally say I could I could run for three hours. I don't know if I could mentally say I could run for five to six hours. Yeah, sure that would be a tough one. So I think I'll just stick to these halves. Uh, so you're down at Key West after a pretty successful week for you guys uh, signing wise. You get Andrew Q in the book. You get Chris Young under wraps. You even get Jared Newman to a contract. How yeah. happy with you uh, with this off season since the drafts have taken place and we're moving towards training camp? How happy are you with the look of your group? I am real happy, and you know what? It's not out yet. You're you're getting the scoop. It's it's. Uh, I just filed it two minutes ago, and we finished up Jordan Durston too. Nice. So Durston is done. So when we went into this off season, we really liked what we were doing on the back end. Now when Glenn and I got together, this will be our fifth season together. So when we got together, we said we got to build from the back out. And I know people are going to say, oh, well, you got rid of Evan Kirk. Yeah, but how do you build from the back out with that? Um, but we needed to use the chips that we had because we were lacking in picks to start rebuilding, but not the rebuild of dump everybody, don't play really well for a couple of years, and then get all your picks in the draft. So we had to do it strategically. So getting rid of someone like Evan Kirk brought us back four pieces, one of those pieces being Dougie, who we yeah. really are high on. So. And Dougie blossomed last year from where he came from the year before when Aaron Bolt was here and Dougie was – he and Aaron were going at it for the starting position. Um, Dougie really took the reins last year and, and played well for us. So we concentrated on the back end with that and rebuilding our defense and bringing in guys like Colton Watkinson, Ooh. Nick Chikowski, the Joel Coyles of the world, adding sprinkling in veterans, Brett Manny. I called John LaFontaine a veteran, but he's still under the age of 30, which is good. Laffey, Andrew Suter, Greg Downing, and then adding guys like Mac Mitchell. We brought in Fournier last year. So that group of guys, and Jackson Nishimura in the draft, like Ooh. that group of guys now I want to keep together and really having them take the next step. So I think on defense, we're young. We're young. They can play together for a couple of years, and, uh, and I like what's going on on the defense. Offensively? I think we were, we, were, we were good last year. We were better than the year before. I, I wanted to see more offensively. And, and listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, right? Like guys had career years. Mm-hmm. Callum Crawford had a career year. Tyler Digby had a career year. Stephon LeBlanc had a career year. Riley O'Connor had a career year. 
Um, but we still wanted that, you know, where you really like, is it uh, one of the coaches once said to us, it's not murder as well, right? You kind of got Callum mm-hmm. and you got some guys to focus on. And, and then if you focus on them, then, then that would uh, slow us down a little bit. So this off season, we said, let's really start concentrating. Now we got to be where we like it. Young, athletic, high lacrosse IQ. Now let's move on to the offense. And we got good pieces up there. Stefan Riley and uh, Callum to really start mm-hmm. with. So where do we get the other pieces? We went out and got Joe Resiteric at the draft, at the uh, at the deadline. I like Joe very much. Joe was always someone we wanted to get here. Um, so now that helps us there. Also gives us a little bit of leeway with some of the things we can do. Derek Downs. I, I think getting Derek Downs at 58 was uh, was a good pick for us. The guy had 16 goals last year. Um, so that worked out well for us. Kevin Buchanan is someone we're not going to bring back this year. And Kevin and I have talked about it and, and he gets it and we get it. And we're going to, we're going to move on at that point. So where do we go from there? Let's start looking at this offense. Um, we were really happy with how Davey Emola played. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really like Davey. He's done a good job. So it allowed us to expose maybe someone on the right side, like a Tyler Digby, more than exposing a young lefty, which, as you know, being around the game, they're the hardest things to find, a good young yeah. lefty. So we, we took the, the stance of saying, okay, we'll expose Tyler Digby, and he got taken. But I still got Joe and Callum and Davey, and we were happy with that. I mean, the one game we, we had them in together before Davey took a five-minute penalty and got suspended, um, we scored 17 goals on San Diego and 13 in the first half. Yeah. Um, that was our best offensive output. And we like what Davey does. And You've watched way more games than me. Um, it, it takes a special person to play that third role. Mm-hmm. You know, you got Calum and you got Joe in front of you. Like they want the ball. They want to score. They want to shoot. Davey doesn't need the ball. Davey's not, doesn't need to be that guy, but he's going to set those hard picks and he's going to get the loose balls and he's going to play that dirty third role. And, uh, and it's hard to find guys that want to just do that. And we found someone in Davey, and we like Davey a lot. So that gave us some confidence to be able to say, okay, we, we like what we're doing here. Let's do that. And then with Derek Downs and the young lefty, Riley and Stefan, we still said we needed some weapons. So mm-hmm. focus, the first one we did was I brought in Joel Penny. We like Joel's athleticism. Joel can run out the back door or the front door. He's uh, very, very, very athletic. He has a pedigree with our coaches from the Toronto Beaches. Um, we like what he brings, so we, we pick up Joel Tinney for a, a second-round pick. Um, going into the draft, you hear things. Things go back and forth. Um, you know, who are you going to cake? Who's going to do it? Who's going to not do it? So we went in with three strategies. Like, we were in a – I don't want to say we were in a driver's seat because we weren't, but we were in a pretty good spot. Like, those two guys were going to make our decision for us in front of us, and we'd be happy with any one of those three guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thinking about it, we were focusing on offense. So, okay, now I think I'm either going to get Gibson or I'm going to get Q. I'm very happy with either one of those guys. Um, But push came to shove, a lefty shooter we have never had here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone like him. So I was intrigued by that. Um, Didn't think we had a chance at that point. You know, a lot of times people play different scenarios and tell you different things and and stuff, but I was prepared for that. So I, I wanted to, I wanted that. I wanted to build up our left side this year. So right before that draft, we said, okay, let's, I'm going to hedge my bets. If I don't get Q, I could use another one over there to help us. Who's available. A guy like Jordan Durston. Um, we pick up Jordan Durston. Jordan does a, a skill set that we think can work out really, really well for us. He goes in those dirty areas. He's called dirty for a reason. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. a tough guy to play against. I called all my defenders beforehand. I said, what do you think of Jordan Durston? Hate playing against him. Gets under my skin. Can't mm-hmm. stand him. But if he was on our team, Rich, I'd love him. He's exactly yeah. what we're looking for. So we went out and got Jordan Durston. So I'm thinking, okay, if I don't get Q, which I'd really, really like, mm-hmm. I'm covered. Like I, I brought in Tinney and I brought in Durston. Mm-hmm. If I get Gibson, I'm pretty good over there too with Gibson and Joe and Callum and, and Davey. So did I, I looked at my starting point was I want to address our offense. Did I address the offense based on what we did in the off season and in the draft, what we're going to get? I did. And I still had the chance to get Rylan Reese, which you've seen him play a lot. I mean, he'd be a really good back end defender for a lot of years. Yeah. So 
I think I've addressed my subject. I addressed everything I needed to address before I got to the, before I got to the draft. And then at the draft, we get Andrew Q, which I couldn't be more happy about. So my dog on my left that. side. How shocked were you that, that, how shocked were you that New York didn't take Q? I was shocked. I, yeah. I thought, um, I thought they were going to take Q. They gave me no indication that who they were taking. I, I will yeah. say that they did a really good job of keeping it close to the vest. Um, but as a as a GM of a team, knowing what you know, like listen, Tyson Gibson is a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous player, and they made the right pick for that team there for number one. Gibson or Q, in my opinion, Reese could have went one, but when you have two offensive guys like that on the board, it's hard to take a defender first. Yeah, and yeah. either one of those guys would have gone. Um, should have gone first. I think as lefties, you, you got maybe that gets a little bit of an edge if there's a lefty mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I was happy when I heard it, when I heard it coming off the board. Little shocked, like listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to anybody. Like Daryl Gibson's my coach. Yeah, would have been nice. You know, we talked about it, um, but I will give Gibby a, a tremendous amount of credit with that. He never pushed it, and if you really asked Gibby what we needed. Our offense needed a lefty that could shoot the ball like Andrew. Yeah, agree. Um, and and so that worked out really well. And he handled himself very very professionally. And it was a tough situation for a guy. I mean, I have three kids. I get it. It's a tough situation. Yeah. Um, but we ended up with the guy we wanted, and I'm excited about it. And now my left side is Stephon LeBlanc, Riley O'Connor, Andrew Q, Jordan Durston, Derek Downs, Joel Tinney. We'll probably run Tinney out the back door. Um, we got some decisions to make over there, but it's better to make the decisions of having too many horses than not having enough horses. Yeah, 100%. and uh, I've been in the position where we've had to make decisions with not having enough horses and and hoping that this guy does what we hope he can do. Um, I, I try to live my life that hope's not a strategy, and um, and I don't hope on our left side. I, I, I really believe our left side is going to be one of the best in the National Lacrosse League this year. Um, and, and out of those five guys, six guys, the four will come to fruition of who they are. Um, and that's great. Competition breeds winning. So uh, I'm happy to have that competition in camp. And the four guys who come out of it, those will be the four best guys, and those will be the guys we go with. So I was happy with our offseason. Yeah, we did uh, some strategic little things. Like we didn't make the – do I want to say we made the big splash like last year? Maybe there were some people or you know, look at uh, some of the things that were done. Like I think Dan Carey and – you know, a lot of focus was on those um, expansion teams, and they've done a good job. And Dan Carey did it, has done, you know, signing Paul Dawson and things like that. Um, but I think we made the right moves for us and what we wanted to address. And, and that's what I do at the beginning of the season and the beginning of the off season. I, I write my goals, mm-hmm. and I try to check off those boxes every single time. And I was able to check off all the boxes this year. When you look at your club now and you look at the new division you're in, how do you like your guys' chances? I like our chances. And you know what? I'd like my chances in my old division too. Yep. Um, I, I guess, and, and, and maybe this is hard for me to say a little bit or how do I put it? Um, you know, we're, there's only two teams that have been the East that have made the playoffs every year for four years, us and Georgia. We just haven't won a championship. And Georgia has. Um, we've been consistent, and when Glenn and I got together, we were four and fourteen. And I bring Glenn in, and we put together our five, six, seven-year plan, and we said we got to get us to be consistent and be one of the teams that win on a consistent basis and make the playoffs. And we've done that. Now our focus is getting over that hump. After you know, there's pressures on us because after a while you can't say, "Well, we've made the playoffs." Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to just make the playoffs anymore. I want to be in the finals. And now that's the next step we got to do. So if we kept the divisions the way they were, I like what we would, I like what we've done in the past and we've done well, the way the divisions are now, it's going to help us develop some rivalry, which I think is good for the box office for all of us. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm excited about it. What's the update on Doug Jamison? Obviously he was injured during the world. Everything seemed to be okay with him for the start of camp. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the, proverbial lower body injury right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i think everyone can read between the lines on that we've had discussions with dougie um he is uh he's progressing we're getting him some work with some rehab and stuff with us with our guy the good thing is is i have two trainers one in connecticut and one in canada so um my canadian trainer is working with him now to get him up and going 
Um, I think it helps us a little bit. We're going to do four weeks of camp starting November 1st, second weekend. And I have a bye week that first weekend. So in reality, I really got five weeks. He's done, he kind of got hurt, what is it, around September 25th. He's got all of October. Even if he did not participate in camp, I still have two other goalies. If he wants, if we want to rest him, that gives him almost eight weeks, nine weeks to really rest up and, uh, and be ready for opening night on uh, December, the 8th, December the 7th in Toronto. So uh, it, it wasn't one of these, uh, these really bad injuries where I got I to gotta think about the next plan. I think he's going to be fine. If Callum Crawford doesn't run into the um, high-sticking incidents, um, is he MVP? Yes. Well, my honest opinion, and people are yeah. going to debate me, and it'll probably make it controversial. I think Callum Crawford should have been the MVP whether he ran into the high-sticking or not. My opinion, yeah. um, the guy led the league in goals. He was second in points, and he played less games than everybody else. If you go on just regular season and not postseason, I get it. Dane Doby's a great player, and he deserves everything he gets. And he's won a championship, and that's what we all want. But if you go on regular season, what Callum did, he deserved to be the MVP. He also deserved to be first-team All-Pro, and he got second-team All-Pro. That bothers me a little bit. Is um, he, have a, is he getting he a bad reputation? You know what? Maybe. Um, you know, maybe he is. He's had two instances within the proverbial, well, you're supposed to have two in 700 days. He's had two in 365. Um, yeah, maybe people could say that. I could see, let's put it like this. We, as GMs, tend to protect our players more than we would protect other players, right? Of course. So if I'm a GM on another team, I might look at that and say, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a little bit of dirtiness to it. To me, as my GM, as the GM of him, um. I'm thinking I, I can understand where that comes from. Knowing Callum the way I know Callum, we've become very close. Mm-hmm. Knowing how he plays the game, jumping around, he's all over the place. Knowing his personality, he doesn't have that chip in his personality. I've been around a lot of athletes. I've been around a lot of people that have that chip that could play like that. He mm-hmm. doesn't have that mentality. I think he uh, has been caught in two situations that he put himself in. I'm not saying he hasn't put himself in it. He put himself in those situations that I'm sure if he looked back on it, he would not like it. Um, But when you look out over his 13-year career, two instances, 13, 14 years, two instances, does that make you a dirty player? I mean, I'm sure you and I could sit here and find 10 more players that are dirtier than that in any Mm -hmm. sport. Um, But it was tough. It was tough because he was having a great year. Yeah. And we were clicking at that point, right? We were, I think we were seven and three at that point. He goes down, we lose three in a row. Yeah. That was tough. Seven and four mm-hmm. at that point, And we lost three in a row. So that was tough. And then kind of, you know, we won that last game in Rochester to get us to 500. But, you know, it's seven wins. I'm thinking, okay, I'd like to get to 10. I'd like to get to 11. I'd like to get us a home game. It, it affected a lot of things. Him mentally, him in his pocketbook, him missing games, us the same way. It was a very unfortunate incident. But I don't think that incident should overshadow what he did accomplish on that field. And uh, he did it with less games than everybody else. So, yeah, again, I might be controversial of it, but I think he deserved to be in the talk. wasn't even in the talk. And he definitely deserved to be first team All-Pro and not second team. Who's your guys' biggest rival, do you think? Philadelphia, I would think. Yeah. Buffalo. You know, Philadelphia, Philadelphia just based on the, the move in the past and all that. Yeah, and you know what? We didn't play well there. <laughs> we did, you know, two games in a row, two games we did not play well there. And, um, you know, I think that's developing a little bit. You know, the storylines are starting to develop a little bit with even with Kevin Crowley moving there and, and us trading him there. And it just becomes a natural kind of thing that everyone wants to put us in a rival with Philadelphia. Um, you know, Buffalo, I think we've had some really good, good games with Buffalo, um, Georgia. I think we've done some really good things with Georgia. You know, our first time in the playoffs, we beat them in overtime with Evie over the shoulder in a, in a game. So I, I think we're starting to develop those. I think that natural progression, you'll see us in New York develop a, rela- a rivalry and a relationship yeah. with that. We're only across the sound from each other. So it's going to be about two hours. So I think that that'll happen too. 
We have to move uh, on with our conversation. We can't always talk lacrosse, even though we'd love to. Um, you're going to be in Key West, but how excited are you for the Connecticut Sun tomorrow night? Oh, my God. So excited. We've been uh, following it from afar. And, you know, we haven't been – uh, well, I shouldn't say from afar, actually. Callum, myself, John LaFontaine, and Brett Manny were at their final regular season game. Um, the excitement was there. They've kind of locked up their two buys that week that for the bye weeks and they were getting ready for their, their games. Um, but it's been really exciting and talking to the staff. Um, but what I think has been tremendous is that Amber Cox, who has taken over our, she's our vice president of business operations for both teams. Um, she's really immersed the staff in that run. And she takes the staff, uh, the whole staff has gone to ticket takers. Everybody has gone to, the uh, the games in Washington. So they've been involved in it. Um, so it's been really exciting to see. Um, I don't envy <laughs> Amber sometimes because it's a lot of work. I've been in two championships and um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of uh, late nights. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of keeping the team focused and keeping them in their lane. I try to use that a lot too, like stay in your lane. But you know what? Their dad and moms want to come. The kid who's been selling tickets all year wants to be involved. The, yeah. the, the executives want to be involved. So it's a lot of logistics. And I think we as, uh, as executives of teams sometimes don't stop and smell the roses as much. And uh, it's been exciting to watch. I watched the game yesterday, just the excitement in that building. The crowds have been tremendous. What they're getting on social media. Our social media guy, Tyler, is killing it got written up the other day by ESPN um, about how well he's doing. And, and that all excitement is going to roll over right to our season. Yeah. I mean, we, they get done. I think they played Thursday, right? So they're playing Thursday yeah. and, uh, and then they win. You got the, the celebrations and everything and stuff. And then we start November 1st. So I want that excitement to roll over to us. And boy, I'd love to be able to stand at the end of the year and have two of those trophies on that stage in Mohegan. So, that would Wouldn't be, that be uh, nice? That would be the goal. Um, the casino has built itself up as a intimidating place to play. It's a, a unique atmosphere um, with just the way that the the seating is coordinated inside that arena. How important is this now? When you guys year four uh, up there, how important is it for you to continue to build um, not only off the sun success but your guys' success in the past with your fan base? It's actually funny. We're in year six, so you're six and okay. it has been great i just told this story the other day to somebody when we started we had 112 season ticket holders and we averaged 3,000 people mm-hmm. it was tough that was yeah. tough right we went 4 and 14 it was uh, it was a little rough now we're up over 1200 getting close to 1500 season ticket holders and and um we averaged 5800 there's 7,000 seats in the building we've had a couple sellouts which has been nice the way the building is configured you've been there you've seen it it's it's kind of configured like uh, I like to say like the gladiators a little bit, like where we come in through the crowd and that second tier kind of overhangs and the players are right near the, the fans and they're loud and loyal right now. And they love it. And, uh, and I love it. Like I love to, to, to get into that atmosphere and things. And you know what? I'm not a, I, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm on Instagram a lot. I don't really do Facebook. But when we make moves and things, and I get calls from our season, our, uh, our social media guy, and he goes, man, there's 150 people ripping you apart online because <laughs> of this trade and blah, blah, blah. And they were all nervous and everything. And I go, no, that's good. Because if there was one person ripping me apart, then I'd be upset because no yeah. one cares. They yeah. care. And they do it. And, like, we do little things like our social media guy, uh, one of the fans who's become a friend, he – um he wrote something on social media and he needed an answer to something. So they call me to get the answer. And I go, you know what? Give me the guy's number. So I called him at dinner time and I said, Hey, it's Rich List, GM of the Black Wolves. I saw online that you asked this question. I'll answer it. And I answered it for him. And now he calls me for advice. On <laughs> he had a, a kid that was in sports marketing and he wanted to have to get an internship. He goes, well, I had your number. I thought I'd call you. So I was like, oh, great. <laughs> but little things like that, I love it. And they're, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're starting to really love it and get into it. And, and it's not, if you watch the two crowds, they're two different crowds. Of course. Like we have our fans. I don't think, we do have the crossover of Sun and Black Wolves fans, but the majority are New England Black Wolves fans. 
And the other thing I'm excited about is I, I came with the team from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I was there for two years before we came here. And there was a lot of Wings lacrosse fans. They were lacrosse fans that watched the Wings. But when we got here to Connecticut, they didn't know box lacrosse from regular lacrosse. They didn't have box lacrosse. So these are genuine, true Black Wolves fans. And that's exciting because we're really starting to see it. Uh, we're starting to see it grow with our grassroots efforts. And uh, our junior Black Wolves program is growing. They won the Pee Wee division up at the NLL. Um, thing this year, so that was exciting. So I, I, I'm really, really, and I know I've said exciting a bunch, a bunch of times, but I'm really excited about what we're, we've been doing and how the future of this uh, this organization looks. The league's partnered with Genius Sports to kind of create data analytics and make sure the game is on the up and up. Is there a time when sports betting and lacrosse will cross paths? Do you think? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think you're starting to see it now crossing in other sports. Um, I've been following, I came from the Arena Football League, so I still have an affinity for that league, and I've been following what they did and are doing, and, and I think they just signed a deal with William Hill, and they're doing their sports gaming and things. It's the wave of the future, right? I mean, from what I hear, you're going to be able to bet on every face-off right from your seat, right. and um, that's going to get more people engaged. It's going to give another revenue stream to teams. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it a little bit more interesting, and, uh, and we'll see. I mean, you see now, I, I think I just read something the other day, where New Jersey sports books are beyond Las Vegas sports books. Wow. Um, and they've made more money than Las Vegas. And it's, a big, it's a big revenue stream out there, and sports is a natural thing. I, I mean, I watch TV. I, have a, I do YouTube TV and streaming TV, but the only thing I really watch live is sports. Everything else I don't watch live. So that lends itself to it. And I think it's, a, it's going to be an exciting area for us. And it's going to be an interesting area because it opens up a lot of possibilities. And, uh, and I think our league is doing it right. Um, they're taking their time. They're not jumping right in. They're doing everything the right way. We just signed an integrity partner. We're getting new stats partners. And all of that is the way to do it. Because, you know, on the, on the, the, when there's always good, there's bad. When there's bad, mm-hmm. there's good. So you want to make sure your boxes are checked before you get into that. And when we get into it, like Nick Sakevich has done with this week, everything Nick has done, has done, he's done really, really well. And he's had the Midas touch with it. And, uh, and I think this is our next progression step. And he's doing it the right way. He's not jumping in right away. He's putting all the things in place to make sure that it goes the right way. And longevity and foundation, which has been big, his big words. Um, with our league. So uh, I'm excited about where it's going. So there's going to be a lot of money on Jake Withers face-offs in the near future. <laughs> Him and Trevor Baptiste. Yeah. Everyone's going to go get those guys, right? I thought <laughs> Joe Nardella this off-season, too. That was another piece we picked up in the off-season, Joe Nardella. So I'm excited yeah. about it. Um, you, you talked about your past, and you've come from the wings, you've come from arena football, but um, the most intriguing is your past from the WWF, not the <laughs> WWE, the WWF. Um, back in the day, and I've had a request. Can we get a mean gene story from you? <laughs> I don't have a PG rated mean okay. gene story. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> but Fair let me enough. tell you, brother, <laughs> <laughs> he was a great guy. Like, I got along really well with Gene, and one of the first things I ever did was I was in, um, I started off in the pay per view department. So I got, I was 22 years old, I graduated college, I did my internship in boxing, Madison Square Garden. And I thought, I'm going to be in the boxing world. So how the sports world works, you know, it's all who you know. And yeah. my brother-in-law worked at the Atlantic City Press. He had an executive assistant. His executive assistant's name was Marie Dillon. Marie Dillon's husband's name was Bernie Dillon. Bernie Dillon was Donald Trump's right-hand man in charge of boxing. Wow. Bam, I'm in. I get down there. I get an interview. He takes us to a fight. I'm sitting down. Across the way from me is Donald Trump and Marla Maples. They're interviewing me. Bernie's interviewing me for this job. I figure, all right, I'm going to be in boxing in Atlantic City. I'm from Jersey. I did my boxing internship. This will be great. Really like the boxing world. And uh, the end of the interview goes, I don't have a job for you. But I got a buddy in the WWF if you want to go there. And I'm like, ah, when I was a kid, I was at WrestleMania 1. I loved really? it as a kid. But, yeah, I went to WrestleMania 1. Oh, I saw the ticket stub. And, uh and I'm like, do I, uh, do I really want to be in wrestling or do I want to be in real sports, quote-unquote real sports? <laughs> but I was getting married to my high school sweetheart. I was delivering beer. I needed to get a job. Yeah. So I sent them my resume. I didn't hear anything for like three weeks. 
I called the guy up. This name, this guy's name is Basil DeVito. And I called Basil up and he answers the phone. Can I help you? And I said, well, you know, I sent you this resume through Bernie Dillon. I was wondering if you had, if you got it. He goes, can you be here tomorrow for an interview? So I'm like, yeah. So I'm, I, I don't know. I've never been to Stanford, Connecticut. I get, I get a suit. I get in the car. I drive to Stanford, Connecticut. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking for like Oz, like this big, huge castle of the WWF. Ooh, and ooh. Oh, I'll find it. I don't need the address. That's, you know, back then we didn't have GPSs and we had little pieces of paper from MapQuest or whatever and maps we actually had. So yeah. um, I get to Stanford and I can't find this building. And then there's a car coming down the street and it's Vince McMahon in a suit, in a, in a convertible. And I'm like, all right, I'll follow him. I know that guy. And he goes into this <laughs> undistinguished garage and I follow him and, and I don't want to look like I'm crazy or anything. So I wait till he gets out of the car before I get out of the car. I give him a few minutes before he goes in and I go in for the interview and we didn't have cell phones. So I had this interview and I'm driving back to New Jersey a couple hours and I get home and I'm living with my grandmother at home. And she goes, there's a guy from the WWF called. And I'm like, yeah. So I picked up the phone. I call him. The guy's like, can you start in two weeks? Wow. And I went in and got my job. So now I'm 50 years old now. And the job I had was I was in pay-per-view and I was the guy who put the little slip of paper in your cable bill that said, buy WrestleMania on this day for this amount of money. <laughs> And they said, okay, we're, you're going to do a paper. So I go in, I do all that. And then they said, your first assignment is you're going to do a pay-per-view party in New Orleans. And you're going to bring Tito Santana, Andre the Giant, and Gene Okerlund, and Jim Neanville Neidhart to New Orleans with, your, with the staff of everybody. And we're at a thing called CTAM, which was the Cable Television Association. And we threw a huge WrestleMania party. And I got a chance to, um, I got a chance to work with those guys. And oh, uh, yeah. Gene did all the announcing, and Jim Nandel, Neidhart, and Tito would wrestle in our in our ring and at this big convention center. And Andre would sit there and drink huge bottles of wine. And, and my <laughs> yeah. boss at the time was really good friends with Andre, and we go and have um we go and have drinks. <laughs> and uh, so we we're having dinner and we're sitting there. And I worked in a department with I think it was eleven females and myself and one other guy who is now my best friend. His name is Skip Bistard. He's the head of YouTube TV. And Skip and I were in that department. And, and our boss was Ann Bojack, and she was great. And Ann goes, Andre, they've never been indoctrinated yet. And Andre goes, okay, sit. And he brings this thing called poire alcohol or something from France out, and he makes us do shots. Oh, and God. do the first shot, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going down. Like, this <laughs> shot is bad. So the second shot, I pour out, and Anne starts laughing because she goes, oh, everyone does it. Everyone does it. But now you've got to do what everyone else has done. And Andre goes, did you pour out? And goes, yeah, you did. He goes, now you sit here and drink with me and put his hand on my shoulder, <laughs> took up my whole shoulder, yeah. and made me do like four or five of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so I was <laughs> – this is those fashion faux pas things, right? So now I go yeah. back to my room. I put on a pair of Zuba pants because I'm a huge Saints fan, and I have a pair of Zuba pants in New Orleans, and I'm walking down the street after drinking with Andre. And this guy bumps into me, pickpockets me, takes my wallet. So the next day, Gene Oakland used that as fodder for <laughs> all the stories all day that I was the guy who got pickpocketed <laughs> in New Orleans because I thought I could drink with Andre. And that became kind of like the thing with Gene and I, Andre, that he'd yeah. always see me. But what a great guy. Great, um, great guy. Your time with the WWE or WWF was, was everything you wanted it to be, or was it just beyond what you thought it could be? You know, it was beyond what I thought it could be. Um, I was 22 years old. I was, uh, um, you know, I wanted to be in sports marketing. And you could not have asked for a better place to learn the sports world and the sports entertainment world, but also the way to do things. And, and, and I say that in, in the utmost respectful way, because the way Vince thought is how I learned. And his first thinking always was, why can't we do that instead of we can't do that? So I, I cultivated up my first year. I did the pay-per-view. Then I went to them and said, I want to get on the road and do some things. So they made me a promoter. It was four or five of us. Wow. And they would, 23 years old, um, I had LA, was one of my markets. And they'd say, here's your $20,000 budget. Here's the card. Um, you go to LA. You live there for six weeks. Promote the show. Go on to the next show. 
And uh, I did that. And I traveled the country. I did 300 days one year with the guys on the road, um, promoted all these shows. And that right there, that real world experience of dealing with the building, dealing with the box office, dealing with the money, dealing with ticket sales, dealing with PR, dealing with press, dealing with uh, um, community relations, placing all the media, making sure all the wrestlers got there, making sure that the show went on, making sure the building got closed up, making sure we did all the closings at the end, and then moving on to the next thing was invaluable experience. Like I, would, I don't know where else you could get that. And I did that for a few years, and then I came back in and worked in the pay-per-view department. And that's when Vince, this is the, the, the stories that I like to tell about Vince, of, of things of why can't you do that. We were in a meeting, and I'm, I'm part of the pay-per-view department with my friend Skip, and it was the two of us running it, and we would, we would buy the satellite time and place all the advertising for all the pay-per-views and get the sponsors and things. And, and at one point, we're sitting in a big meeting, and Todd Pettengill was this local DJ here in New York who became an announcer for them. And he said, um, hey, I'm selling my house in Montclair, New Jersey. We could give it away on TV. So Vince walks in, and he says it to Vince, and Vince goes, to Skip and myself, and Skip was the head of the department. I was Skip's right-hand guy, and he goes, can we give away a house on TV? And he, Skip goes, I, I think we can. He goes, Pat, to Pat Patterson, go to Florida, buy a house on a golf course, get back here by Friday. Ooh, Thursday, Pat went down to Florida, bought a house, bought it in. We, put, we did all the, the promotions and stuff on Friday, Saturday morning. We were saying, the in-your-house, when we started those in-your-house pages, yeah. we're giving away a house. And that happened within a week. All from a guy saying, we should give away my house on TV. And Vince was like, well, who wants to live in Montclair, New Jersey? Yeah. People want to live in Florida on a golf course. That's unreal. And then he called us once and he said, uh, what do you guys think of Lawrence Taylor? And we said, oh, Lawrence Taylor would be great. I think he'd be good in the corner of a guy. He goes, no, I'm going to have him wrestle. He goes, we said, well, how are you going to get him to wrestle? He goes, he just retired. He's an ex-athlete. He's going to want the celebrity of all that. He goes, mm-hmm. I'm going to get him to wrestle. And about six weeks later, he called us and he said, let's go to Tampa. We went down the Royal Rumble and they stayed, we staged the thing to have Bam Bam Bigelow come yeah. out, push Lawrence Taylor and everything. And if you watch that video of that whole thing, myself and Skip are in the second row and you see more of Skip than you do me, but we were in the crowd to make sure no one got hurt. Right. And we were like fans when Lawrence got pushed. And, uh, and and everything, and then that started that. And then I, I, that. I did the WrestleManias there and, and things with him on that. And then my last year, um, they called me in, and I started to have – I had good relationships with Vince and his son, Shane, and his, his daughter, Stephanie, actually worked in my department. And I had a baby at the time, and they knew my kid, and, uh, my son and stuff. And uh, that last year, they came to me and said, um, Diesel, we're going to make him the new Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Um, we need you to travel with him. So you'll travel with Diesel exclusively and be his handler everywhere on the road. So for a year, I traveled with Diesel. And we became good friends, and we still talk. And I'm actually trying to get him to come to one of our games as a, as a Wolfpack member and our yeah. pack and stuff. And and uh, he and I did the Rock and Jock MTV softball game. And we did yeah. the Dan Cortez show on MTV. And we did the John Stewart show. And, and uh, I traveled with him for a year. And then it became too much. I had a baby and... Mm-hmm. We wanted to get home to New Jersey and living in Stanford was too much. And then I, I went and worked for the Flyers organization and, and got into hockey and ran, uh, lined up a couple of years down the road running a minor league hockey team for seven years. And But my time at the WWF was uh, was special. I look back on it a lot and and love the things that I've done there. I love the people that I've, I've met and made friends and friends for life. And, you know, milestones like when the smoking guns won the – the tag team championship. I traveled with them for six, six to eight weeks to three of us on the road together. So when they won the tag team championship for the first time, they uh, called me into the photo shoot to take a picture with them. Cause I was on the road with them and they said, Rich yeah. learned it just as much as we did. And, and I had that picture in my basement of, of me and the smoking gun. So, uh, you know, things like that have been great. They're good experiences. We could talk wrestling all day long, but this isn't a wrestling show. Uh, <laughs> you guys uh, start on the road. You don't start till the beginning of December. You go December 7th in Toronto. Then you're in, Sask- in Saskatchewan on the 14th. But then you got six home games in a row through December and February. How important is that stretch going to be for you guys? Huge importance. Like, I, uh, you know, we, Glenn and I usually break things down into three-game segments. And this year we're actually going to look at it in a different way. Um, 
but you want to win your home games, right? And we've been very good at home. I think last year we were seven and three, seven and four at home, eight and three at home. I think we were in that record. Um, one, you want to win at home for crowds and fans and everything like that. Um, but two, it's special when you win at home. And those are games that you really, you really bear down. This is your spot. This is your house. Like you don't want people coming in your house and, and, uh, and kicking you around. So we tend to play really well at home. We got to solve that mystery on the road. We tend not to play as well on the road. Yeah. And, uh, and I think this will help us a little bit because we do have kind of like quote unquote, the regular schedule of, you know, we have two away games, then we come, we have a bye week, then we're home. And then a non-regular schedule would be six home games, which means we're going to have to have that many games on the road. So mm-hmm. Glenn and I have really talked about this and, and we're going to study it a little bit more. What is that mojo? What is that formula to make us uh, play so well at home? How do we capture that on the road? Yeah. Is it, you know, getting to the, 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 the uh, a day ahead of time? Is it different busing? Is it doing more dinners on the road? Things like that, which is where, um, my psychology will come into play a lot and, and figure that out. Um, but I think it's going to be a big test for us. And I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to that test because um, I'd love to capture what we do at home on the road as much as possible. And I think a lot of general managers deal with that in our league, mm-hmm. especially because the, the games are so spread out through weekends and getting guys in town from different markets. I think every team kind of struggles with that. It'll be interesting to see how teams, work through that it's hard right I and mean, yeah. it's not like any other sport i've done the majority of my life I, I did a minor league hockey team in the east coast hockey league i was with the trenton titans and i uh, was there for six seven years and everybody lived there we were the affiliate of the flyers we had six or seven flyer guys you practice every day you get on buses you never never fly we take buses everywhere and then i went yeah. to the arena football league and i was there for three years with the soul and um Everybody lives in the marketplace and we practice every day and you're around everybody every day and stuff. So when I got here, it was difficult. It was, uh, it was pretty interesting. Um, I handle all the travel for the guys too. And all the, all that lacrosse side of things. So I'm, I'm heavily involved in all of that. And I got to tell you, I, I see it from other sports when people complain to me about travel and this and that, I'm like, you guys don't do what our guys do. Mm-hmm. Like that's a lot like work a job, get in a car at five o'clock, get to an airport, get on a flight at nine, get to Connecticut by 11, get into the hotel, get on, you know, get everything situated, then go down for shoot around, go to sleep, get up, try to get some meals in you, get a game. And then you're out of there the next day. Like that's yeah. a lot. And, and all, and every place it's a lot, every single team and everyone has their own, their own intricacies that they deal with. And, you know, one of the things I deal with is that, and we're in Uncasville, Connecticut. Yeah, it's not easy it's to get not, to. It's not easy to get to. So my job is to make it as easy as possible for the guys. Mm-hmm. Make sure their transportation is good. Make sure if I can get them into a closer airport, I can. Um, because these are the best lacrosse players in the world, and they should be treated like that at every given moment. But it's a lot. It is, it is a lot. And, yes, I think our GMs, and we, we all talk about that um, and what we go through. And um, would I love to have more guys live in the Boston area? Absolutely. I got a few now, but the majority of my team flies in. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hard. And, and not only that, I think what we've done, and again, you've been around lacrosse way longer than I have. And I've always heard from like guys before the PLL started about the NLL. And they're like, yeah, it's different, Rich. Uh, the NLL is more team. We feel more like a team sometimes. And with, when it was with the NLL, when we just flew around and stuff. And, and I try to do that a lot. Like that's, I want these guys to like each other. I want them to be around each other because they don't get what the other athletes get of having dinner every night together or playing, you know, throwing a football on the front lawn of the apartments when the weather's nice and there's 15 of them out there doing stuff. You know, they only get to see each other on the weekends. Yeah. So yeah. what do we do to make that better for them? How do we make that as a team? Because I believe talent is talent. We all know who the talented players are, and we're all searching for the next talented player. What's that formula, and what's that other thing you need to bring to win? And I, I think camaraderie, and I think being a team and a pack and a family, that's what helps make you win. And I think it's harder for us in this league than it is other leagues to, to cultivate that. 
nine and nine you guys were last year. What do you see your team in 2019, 2020? Um, I, I definitely see us uh, above nine and nine. My goal, uh, I have never cracked the 10 win mark. I have been at 10 before. So my goal is to get over 10. I say that to Glenn every year. Get me to 11, Glenn. Get me to 12, Glenn. Ooh. Like that's, uh, that's what we're shooting for. Um, nine and nine got us into the playoffs. Nine and nine is average. I don't want to be average. Yeah. Um, I'm not average in anything I do, the way I live my life, family, the whole nine yards. I'm just not average. So I want to be above that average. I want to be up over the 10 win mark. And uh, I want to, I want to dictate it to some people. I want that home playoff game and that's what we're going for. There's nothing short of that. Rich, always. I want you guys to pick us every week. I want well, you to pick I, us okay, every week. I will. I, will. I don't. I don't have a deal. I don't know Clem like Pat Gregoire knows Clem. I will gladly pick you guys every week. But there's you one stipulation. Teddy? There's one stipulation. All right, go ahead. You got to introduce me to Vincent Candy McMahon at some point. I will do my best to introduce you to Vincent McMahon. The, the best I can. I will do that. And I'd like to, I know Clem's got Patty Gregor. I'd like to have a Patty Gregor. Maybe you could be my Patty Gregor. I'll be your Patty Gregor. Pat doesn't pick you guys. Pat picks against you guys so that you guys will win. So now I'm going to pick you guys. And if you guys start losing, you can't blame me, Rich. No, 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 no. I'll blame myself for that. I won't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) My friend, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, I appreciate your time. You You guys have done. Uh, a lot of work in this offseason. Andrew Q is a huge get for you guys. I love the signing of, of Jared Newman. Uh, I think you guys are going to do real well in that in that Eastern Division. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you, sir. I really do. Thank you. And I appreciate everything you do for us. I really do. Thank you. Rich Lisk has stories that go on for days. We could have sat and chatted, and I could have asked him about all of my favorite old school wrestlers, and I know he would have stories. And I know we're going to share those stories in the future, whether they're on here on the podcast or in person, because some stories are better left untold on this podcast. But when you listen to Rich talk, you can see how his past experiences have helped him get to where he is. And the mindset of Vincent Kennedy McMahon, who says, it's not we can't, it's why can't we, really speaks volumes about what Rich does with the Black Wolves. He takes chances. He's a gambler. He understands what it means to have to be successful in the world of sports business. Trading Kevin Crowley wasn't a popular decision, but it was a gamble he took in order to get draft picks and pieces for the future. And look what it's done so far. This is a club that will contend in that Eastern Division. This will be a club that is very tough to play against. If they can get their offense in gear and stuff really start to find some cohesion out that front door, I think the New England Black Wolves really could be the pack to beat out East. As always, thanks to the listeners for listening in and, of course, to Rich Lisk. Um, I guess, apparently, if you have an issue with him, give him your number and he'll call you out of the blue or he'll slide into your DMs like he did to me. Until next time, if you want to get a hold of me, email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar. Until we speak again, enjoy the fall and be excellent to each other. <laughs>